Hello everyone, it's July 26th, 2022. This week we're taking a close look at One Tian well on its way to Tian Gong. Then we're talking to our Matt Villarreal of Infinite Composites. They make some pretty revolutionary pressure vessels that could change spaceflight in a big way. Alright, it's a big show, so let's go and lift off. Of the tower. Welcome to episode 369 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So I think in the news this week, the International Space Station, uh, there is some concern that it that we won't have a commercial replacement in time by the time it is uh, taken out of service. Mm. So this was uh, something that was mentioned by the NASA safety advisors. So I guess there's uh, several of them. So I kind of wonder why this is a safety issue, but that's who kind of sounded the alarm about this, which is not really news to me because I, I mean, I've been heavily skeptical about this in the first place. Like, I don't see it as a realistic scenario that by the end of the decade, we'll have a commercial space station operational. So, you know, just a fun little thing to talk about at the top of the show, if you have any thoughts on that, because this wasn't very revelatory to me. The only thing that would surprise me maybe, or perhaps not surprise me, is if they just try to push the lifetime of station a little bit further, mm-hmm. because uh, that's the only viable option if you want to keep people in space on a permanent basis. Yeah, yeah, no, it's certainly the prospects for extending station with the relationship between the United States and Russia, those prospects are not looking as good as they would have, you know, 10 years ago, when I'm sure we had some idea about the life of station. But yeah, I don't know. Uh, I know Russia keeps talking about uh, actively pursuing their own segment, but realistically, I don't know whether that's going to really work. But they do, you know, that's part of Nauka being on theirs to kind of give them a new core, I guess. Or not, maybe not a new core, but like you can attach some things to the uh, the Zenith side of Nauka uh, where Preachall is and then break that off and then have a Russian station. So so an isolated section, yeah, like a like a seed crystal mm-hmm. where you can yeah. break off Nauka without <laughs> yeah. having so to worry too a- much. <laughs> Chris in the chat says, what are they going to do? Put a tape line across the ISS? <laughs> yeah. Well, that was, that was I don't know oh, what I was listening to or what, but they had mentioned uh, the different kind of levels of uh, conflict happening on station, where, of course, you know, both segments trying to go their separate ways, which, again, let's talk about the feasibility. I don't think that can happen with how in- integrated they are. Well, yeah, right. It would take a huge amount of cooperation that if they're splitting up, is probably not going to be available. But they had alluded to the idea that uh, there could be uh, where things get so bad, but not that bad, where you just close the hatch between them and you just don't talk mm-hmm. to each other, wow. which is kind of weird to me. Just visual, like thinking about that, I'd never considered that that could be a, a step if things continue. I still don't to... think it is. Oh, I hope not either, because we not only have shown that uh, the space programs operate in a different world than the political uh, right. just the, the top level politicians uh, live in. Um, hopefully that will stay uh, true for a while. And then we also don't know about the new head of Roscosmos, uh, uh, mm-hmm. exactly yeah. how that's going to shake out. Well, and it's it's funny because like, while I think it's a little ridiculous to think that they could close the hatch and just not talk to each other, um, because like the coordination on the ground would still have to happen. Um, it would be purely emblematic to and any cooperation between the individuals on orbit in a social sense, because they're still going to be cooperating in every other sense that matters. Um, but while I still think that, that sounds ridiculous to me, there were like some not great symbolic items brought up to the ISS and put on display. Mm-hmm. 
at the beginning of the uh, the invasion of Ukraine. And it's just like, well, okay, maybe that maybe these things aren't as separated as uh, as I would like to believe. Yeah, I mean, I imagine the cosmonauts they don't have much of a choice in the matter. So right, and that's the thing is like you know, cosmonauts uh, just like any Russian citizen are for the most part aren't going to be as extreme as uh as the outspoken heads of government and cosmonauts just like astronauts are very you know goal-oriented people who are there to do a job and not there to uh you know get all fussy about something that's yeah rabble rouse about something that's literally on the surface of the planet that you are no longer on like i Mm -hmm. just don't think it's it's that big of a, a personal issue like a personal relationship issue so if they close the if they close the hatches, it would it would be purely symbolic, I, I would imagine. Yeah, and to your point, right? I mean, NASA did release a statement that was criticizing them holding up those flags, those uh, two oblasts in eastern Russia, because because right, typically NASA, you know, and astronauts, they kind of do the uh, the sports uh, interviewee, like, oh, you know, they played a great game, you know, we just give it mm-hmm. our all, you know, they, these kind of mm-hmm. like vanilla uh, answers yeah. that don't really have any much uh, much behind them. But uh, yeah, uh, that's you know that's again inching in the wrong direction um, in terms of them being inti- uh, intertwined. Did I say Eastern Russia? Yeah, you did. I think I did say Eastern Russia because I was thinking that was just a miss. Yeah, I meant Eastern Ukraine. That was not that was not a Freudian slip either. <laughs> that that would have been great. Uh, but you know the the uh, the risk board game did pop into my head when I was trying to think what what is an Eastern Russia? Oh, Kamchatka. Oh yeah, right. No, well, that's exactly. I was like, well, you know, you keep one army in Kumchaka and you get the get the heck out. Wontian has launched. This was about a Changzheng Five B, which I guess is a Long March Five B. It's interesting you put it in Chinese there. Yeah, sometimes you see the uh, the CZ five B. Yeah, and I guess there's some speculation about an uncontrolled reentry. Yeah, I think we're 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 currently in that realm right now where it's on orbit. But remember, this is the one that doesn't have the second stage. The whole thing is a stage and a half, and so uh, you know it, it launches from uh, the port that's on the uh, the island uh, in the water, basically off the coast of, of Vietnam. And uh, in Wenchang. And so, you know, it dumps its boosters uh, in the water, but then it, the first stage makes it to orbit. And so now it's in a low orbit. And of course, uh, if you're familiar with John, Jonathan McDowell, he's a person to follow on Twitter to get updates on it. But uh, yeah, it's probably going to be another one of these uncontrolled reentries at some point in the next n many days. And where it comes down, we don't know. Some pieces have made it <laughs> to the surface in the past. Uh, uh, the last time, there, it was close enough to the United States for uh, a lot of uh, noise to be raised here. But um, uh, on an earlier launch, they did actually have a basically a tube, uh, some piping that was like 12 meters long that landed in Cote d'Ivoire on the western coast of Africa. No injuries or anything, but just, you know, that's a... That's a big piece of metal to be flying through the sky. Yeah, and, and just to give credit where credit's due, the um the first uh, I had seen about the uncontrolled reentry was from uh, the space gal on uh, Twitter. It was uh, Emily Calandrelli, uh, who's a great space person <laughs> to follow. Yeah, so um you know the, it might 
re-enter before this goes to air, or at some point, I guess it'll be a uh, upcoming space flight event, the uncontrolled re-entry. But let's just hope, you know, it lands in the water safely, uh, just bothers some fish. But as for the module itself, uh, really, really cool. <laughs> uh, this thing is a, a beast. So it's 17.9 uh, meters long and 4.2 meters in diameter and 22 tons. So for comparison, the length of the U.S. lab Destiny, which is kind of our biggie module on the ISS, is 8.4 meters long and 4.2 meters in diameter. So it's the same diameter. Again, those lengths were 17.9 versus 8.4 meters. That's a very big difference, but it's because Wentian has a few different modules, I guess, uh, uh, attached to it as well. So it's not that there's going to be, you know, two Destinies worth of pressurized, habitable uh, space for people to hang out in. Um, it's, it looks like basically the part of Wenxian that is habitable is about the same size as uh, Destiny. So it looks it looks very similar in terms of you know dimensions. It follows a, a similar uh, idea where the, the the crew working compartment will have uh, these racks that can be uh, taken in and out over over time, and so you can have your glove boxes here, you know, a little fire starter experiment there, maybe a centrifuge, all those kind of great stuff. And so that'll be fun to see uh, on there, and really, really increase the uh, livable space. But then beyond that, what makes this module so huge is that there's a uh, uh, there's a unpressurized cargo module, and then finally a control module on the end. So the way you can visualize it is that after your typical cylindrical, you know, looking, you know, space module, you then have a block or like a cube. And it's got all these little uh, squares on it where you can put modules, uh, external. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the sub-modules, the mini-modules. Yeah. Square zits. Square zits. Uh, all nicely, uh, kind of evenly spaced uh, around it. And you can mount uh, external experiments there. And so the, the interior is going to be unpressurized, so the crew can go in there. It's a little, it's narrower than the, uh, the crew working compartment, but, you know, you can certainly fit a, a meat bag or two in there. And so, uh, but that would be unpressurized. And so I guess the, the, the real key is that you would have these external uh experiments that you could mount there using the uh, uh, remote manipulator system, the arm that they're uh, putting uh, that's going to be uh, on the side of the module. And so you've got uh, uh, yet another arm on the uh, Tiangong space station. So this, I believe, is the second one now. That's always fun, seeing more arms in space. And then uh, forward of that, at the end, capping it all off, and it seems to keep tapering down, is the best way I could describe it is it just looks like a uh, the narrowing cone of a of specter if you remember mirror um, yeah i was gonna specter say module. specter or font yeah mm, exactly and so it's got that it's a, it's a tapered cone this is the control module so i guess the interior is probably chock full of uh some you know equipment and electronics and things like that but then the the outside you can still mount some uh, experiments on there uh, a few but that's also where the uh the solar arrays come out and so unlike the frankly aesthetically unappealing look of those, you know, specter <laughs> solar uh, arrays where they came out, you know, flush with the size of the cone, so they're kind of pointing in a V shape. Uh, these ones will come out 90 degrees to the axis of the whole vehicle. Those are some big arrays. Those are like bigger than Rosa. They're yeah, they're they're really cool. Um, and if you notice, they, they look uh, just like the saws on ISS actually. Yeah, exactly. And I wonder, you know, that might be how they're deployed because it looks like they got that central kind of. So each array has yeah. two large panels, and they got the truss in between them. So like you're saying, exactly, it, it looks very similar. 
uh, you know, at least superficially to the saws on, on station. Yeah. And then if you notice, uh, maybe, uh, I don't know, four fifths of the way up, there's kind of uh, a little discontinuity and it's because they fold out that last part of the array, maybe the last fifth only after docking. So once it gets on orbit, it extends, uh, again, I'm estimating, you know, four fifths of the array. And then there's another part that looks like it folds out after docking. Oh, I see. So they partially extend it. They partially extend it before they dock so that it has power because they don't presumably don't have enough battery life to run this whole thing. And they get to station, they can deploy an extra fifth. And, and I say it looks like they would fold it out just because that discontinuity uh, between the, the long end of the panels and the short end of the panels looks like, you know, a, a joint where you would fold something. But there's, I don't know how that works with a truss running through the middle. So he, here's my here's my guess. Um, mm. Right, you're talking about where there aren't solar pan, there, there aren't PV cells, and it's like a white, yes, a, yeah. a white square. Okay, so my guess is that they actually deploy. It's probably not folding. Well, no, no, no. I, this this probably folds in a zigzag pattern, judging by the the base, which has like a lip on it. Um, and so I'll bet that those white panels are extra latching mechanisms. And so what they can do is they can. Uh, unlatch the top of it and extend because this extends from the bottom up. So they probably extend one fifth. And then after they dock, they can unlatch those white panels and extend all of the rest of it. And instead of it being one fifth at the end, it's one fifth at the beginning. I see. I see. Total yeah, guess. No, you're right. I, no, I flipped it around. I, 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 I had just read it wrong. The shorter segment is six and a half meters long and that deploys after orbit insertion, and then the longer segment is post-docking, okay. which makes sense because it's like get enough power to make sure your module can get to the station for docking, and then you're good. Um, so that's why you would just go with the shorter segment originally. It's a really interesting design because like for the ISS, shuttle did not need solar arrays. <laughs> um, and, you know, like I, I've used the uh, the ISS style giant solar arrays in a winged vehicle uh, in Kerbal Space Program. Uh, and it was really funny to like open the bay doors and then have this giant ass solar ray, uh, kick out. And, you know, it was just so that I could do like, uh, uh, electric repulsion or something. But like, it, it's kind of cool to think about like actually doing this in the real world. And that's a great way to handle it is, you know, keep it small and keep your, uh, your lever arm real short. Uh, until you are done doing your big maneuvers and then you can mm. bust it out and, and do more work. And right. So the reason that these stick out 90 degrees instead of being canted, uh, like Spectre was is because in the diagrams, it looks like they would still come out at an angle, but it's, they're not deploying from there. That's, that's the thing being folded up. So it's all of the canister and everything just flopping forward so that it fits inside your, your payload fairing. So it's, it's a really a good, a good looking design. Like it's actually, uh, mm-hmm. it doesn't look awkward in the way that Spectre did. Yeah. And it's going to be the thing that stands out when you get the completed station. So to jump ahead a little bit, the, uh, Mencian, which is a very similar, uh, looking module is going to be, uh, ultimately opposite of Wenxian. And so it'll also have the big uh, pair of arrays coming out on the other side. So when you see the finished uh, station, um, that's that's what you're going to be looking at. That's cool. Put, put them all at the ends instead of in the middle. Um, that might make docking a little more futzy, but... Yeah, so so the docking is really interesting, actually, with Wenxian. So the, the crew compartment, 
you know, the, the, the cylindrical ISS looking module. That at the at the one end of there where the docking uh, port is, uh, there's a, uh, I guess, a primitive arm. And so it's going to actually uh, dock not where it wants to go. Ultimately, it's going to dock along the uh, main axis um, of the, the station uh, and dock with the Tianhe core module. And uh, it's doing that because uh, it, it doesn't have uh, active docking capabilities. And so I think uh, to be able to dock with the station, it just needs to go there. And so it's going to go into an axial port and then use this, I guess, primitive arm to basically, I think it only moves in one kind of direction, really. Like it swivels in just one degree of freedom and is going to then move it from the ac along the axis to a radial port, the starboard radial port. And then mount it there permanently. So that way you have the nice, uh, ultimately, solar panels on the two sides. So I could be wrong about whether or not it just has the one axis. I can see the it, one. It certainly looks like it. And and But I, I think it's not so much a, a Canada arm clone. It looks like an ERA clone, the European robotic arm to me, if anything. Oh, okay. Where it's got the, the Charlie Chaplin look, yeah. where it, it, it <laughs> kind of makes a very, you know, I mean, it looks like Charlie Chaplin with the two feet kind of sticking out. So I'm a little bit confused. So this thing docks with the axial port mm -hmm. and it can do that but it doesn't have any active docking system for the radial port so what's the difference there like why is it that it i get that the arm needs to you know take it and carry it over to the other port but why can it dock with the axial port i mean i, I so this is this is unfortunately something i didn't have the time i didn't i wanted to look up if i had more time to investigate um i'm guess just the way that the station is designed is if you want to dock with the station the station you dock with the axial port. I guess that the axial port on station does have an active docking system and it can, mm -hmm. you know, do all the work and pull it in. And basically the station itself does all the active docking, at least on the axial port. Right. That, that's what I think. So the station, yeah, the station brings it in there, grabs it. So I right, I, I guess the terminology is that it berths? Well, it, it docks and then they they use the arm to berth it to a different port, I think is what you're what you're getting at. The main difference between docking and berthing is that docking includes capture birthing is when you you know capture with an arm or something and then the docking ports you just mush them together and they may have alignment tabs or something but they don't have capture mechanisms they have bolts that that go in and uh, you know a bolt is really horrible for uh for coming in and being two free floating bodies you want to have something that'll grab you and hold you still like a latch so nothing ever births it it might birth and then nothing only births it might burst, but then have to dock afterwards. Yeah, I mean, if Dragon V1 being grappled by the arm constitutes a docking, sure, then yeah, you could say that's a docking and then a berthing. But really, that's a that's a capture and then and then a berthing. The docking would, to me, imply that there's a docking port, uh, not a not a grapple fixture. What pops up first on Google is uh, the docking specifically refers to joining of two separate free-flying space vehicles, but berthing refers to mating operations where a passive module slash vehicle is placed into the mating interface of another space vehicle by using yeah. a robotic arm or something. So Yeah, so they're already being controlled there. Yeah, that, that's a good definition. I want to know more about this this tiny little robotic arm near the port, though. Right. Um, so I guess I give a, a, a shout-out to uh, a CN Spaceflight on uh, Twitter, as well as uh, SegerU. Uh, they are both uh, really good uh, accounts, uh, in addition to, um, of course, Andrew Jones is very famous in the English-speaking uh, world for following Chinese spaceflight. 
but uh, those accounts are both great. And they, uh, I know the China and Asia spaceflight one has a lot of uh, pictures uh, of Wenxian on orbit. And so you got some nice uh, views of uh, checking out the, uh, I've actually seen it up there. So, so this tiny little relocation arm is really interesting to me. So you can see um, near the base of it, there's like one really good photo that I don't think I need to link again. Like it's the photo. Uh But um, you can see that if you were to move the thing all the way to the left, or sorry, to the right side of the photo, um, there's a little recess to protect that little ball. Um, So what what I was doing was I was looking for something that looks like that on Tianhe. And I think there are two of them uh, in some of the photos I can or some of the renders. But they're like 45 degrees between the two ports. So if the ports are, you know, east and west, this is northeast and northwest, which which makes sense. Because I was like, how is that tiny little arm going to be long enough, have enough motion to do uh, all of this? So what's really interesting is this arm is going to have to come out of that little recess and rotate uh, the wrist 180 degrees, basically, so it can grapple onto whatever whatever fixture they have and then i guess at that point it's still bent enough that um, they can back the module away from the port to disengage them and then it can rotate it around 90 degrees and so the arm itself since it's attaching to a point 45 degrees it doesn't have to make it around uh the full 90 degrees it just has to be able to move back and forth you know, 45 degrees total from 45 degrees on the left to 45 degrees on the right. It's so interesting because it's got one purpose and I don't know if it's ever going to do anything again. I mean, you could have it. No, you couldn't have it inchworm uh, so that you could go from the starboard port to the port side. You can only go from, you can only make one change because then the arm is in the way. It's really interesting. I, I, I hadn't seen this before. I thought they were using their big science arm to to do this. Right, right. It is clever. And and I can see it looks like it does have a second way that it can pivot at the module itself. It looks like there's kind of a, a U-shaped bar there yeah. that can kind of go up and down. But. Yeah, it's it's tough to tell because there are definitely two exposed gears that you can see that are clearly one axis of rotation. And then that that bar, I don't know if it actually if it actually has another motion. Uh, axis of motion there or not it's unclear it's, it's, <laughs> it's unclear. yeah it really it's tough to say it, it might but i don't see i don't exactly i don't think you'd need that... it no like imagine yeah imagine you want to go to the left in that picture if you want to go to the left then you're good and all, all you need to do like you mm-hmm. said is translate your module 90 degrees yeah and, and critically you need to be able to back up so the arm has to have that much length which kind of means that the the fixture that it's grabbing has to be behind the port that you're docked to <laughs> so that you have enough room to back up yeah. or, or it, it has to be behind, but it can't be too far behind because otherwise your arm is just going to be stretched all the way out. I really hope we get to see this happen. <laughs> I, I doubt we will, but I would love that. And so, uh, right. I had mentioned that the sort of twin module, um, right. That does have, again, some differences, but, uh, very similar, uh, otherwise is Mencian, the other large laboratory module, uh, later this year in October, uh, they're planning for a launch. And then at the end of next year, uh, the Shunxian space telescope, 
So a uh, a Hubble slash uh, Roman class telescope. I guess it's actually probably more like a Roman class. I think it has a wide field of view too, but I'm not entirely certain about that. But in any event, that one uh, should be arriving next, uh, or hopefully launching next December. That'll be cool because that is going to be co-orbital with the station and capable of docking with it, presumably for repairs, maybe some instrument switches, uh, things like that. And then uh, the final little thing I want to mention was I thought this was pretty interesting and, you know, the beginning of a very big, important era is that the Shenzhou 14 crew, which is on orbit right now, that's going to be there for, uh, or that's you know, there for Wenxian's uh, approach and docking. This may be, if, I, if I've read it correctly, the beginning of a continuous uh, Chinese presence on orbit. So I think they might try to uh, not break their crews anymore and just have uh, a handoff. Uh, for their station and so we'll see how long that can go those are going to be some long stays if it's just one country doing it well i mean admittedly that one country does have a larger population than uh-huh. u.s plus russia plus europe <laughs> and uh a, you know a, a very a very strong control over or very well integrated budget control right like if they de- if if the party well, yeah, decides they, that they want to do this they're going to do it they can afford yeah. it if, if they want to do it yeah as opposed to like the u.s where like you know nasa's and ge- nasa's very presence in space is jeopardized every year yeah no sam in the chat pointing out something very great which is the same setup as mere at least initially um but also that they're China's economy is probably five times as much as the 80s uh, Soviet Union was. <laughs> nope. That's probably that's probably an understatement yeah, or, I think, an, or an underestimate. Yeah, and that's why yeah, these, are, these are sleek and beautiful, and I don't think there's going to be uh, fires or any crashes happening on the Chinese space stations. All right, let's do three short and sweets this week. Ben, what is the first? All right, Impulse and Relativity announced joint mission to Mars. While neither company has yet flown their first missions, Relativity Space and Impulse Space jointly announced that they are working on a Mars lander, aiming for the late 2024 launch window to the Red Planet. Relativity's fully reusable Terran-R rocket would carry Impulse Space's lander on a trajectory to Mars, after which the lander, encased in its aeroshell, would enter the atmosphere and attempt a propulsive landing. This would be the first attempt at a Mars lander without the involvement of a government agency. And then next up, Nancy Grace has arrived to space. NASA has selected SpaceX to launch the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope in 2026. A Falcon Heavy will carry the telescope to the Earth-Sun L2 Lagrange point for a price of $255 million. This is a substantially higher price than previous SpaceX contracts with NASA. The increase in price is due in part to inflation as well as other launch-related costs. However, NASA is committed to delivering this flagship mission within budget and on time as skepticism about its ability to do so has increased following the delays and cost overruns associated with JWST. And finally, first private company to launch from French Guiana. The French space agency CNES has selected ISAR Aerospace to operate its launch vehicles from Europe's launch site at Kourou. Specifically, ISAR will be using the pad that had previously been used to launch Diamant, the French rocket which was the first launcher built by a nation other than the US or USSR. The Munich-based company has already secured another launch site in Europe and aims to provide launch services for small and medium-sized satellites in the European market. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns, and we have a couple this week. Uh, corrections. So the 
first one uh, is going back to when we were talking about uh, the BE4 reuse on our, what do we call it? Test Fest 2? Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a very, it's just a, a, a wonderful, wonderful timing. Um, so, right, we talked about the smart reuse for the BE4 engines, which I was unaware of at all. And then literally like a day or two later, Gopal uh, pointed out that Aviation Week went and posted a whole article with an update on it. And so while that's behind a paywall, um, there is a, a Twitter account, uh, free underscore space, which is Irene Klotz. And so she gives a, a quick breakdown of, of an update because it's a it's a substantial update. So they're still, you know, going to just capture the engine, uh, the engines as a pod, I suppose. But rather than using a helicopter to go and grab it, they're going to actually have the inflatable Aero shell that they're going to use to slow things down to actually double as a splashdown pad, since after all it's a <laughs> inflatable aero shell. You can kind of see how something like that might float, and so that's the idea there. And so uh, <laughs> to quote Tori Bruno, uh, it turns out the decelerator makes an excellent raft. So <laughs> yep. with, yeah, and so with that improvement, all they need are they're estimating three reflights to reach the break-even point, where it would have been six reflights. Uh, uh, if they were using the chopper in terms of, you know, cost effectiveness. And uh, a, a big part of that was, and, and just also to point out, is the reason why um, something like a propulsive return uh, wasn't a good idea is that uh, they really are pushing launch vehicle for a lot of these DOD missions. And so they're going way downrange. If you see the other kind of reuse cases, those rockets are not ending up, you know, several thousand kilometers downrange like uh, uh, they, they plan to with these B-4 engines. So. Thanks, Gopal. Very, very cool. And then we have another correction burn, or an actual, I guess, correction burn, right? Sorry about the first one. was not a correction, yeah, just a, a little bit of additional supplemental information. It's, but. it's more of a correction, that's that's for sure. So this next one is from uh, Uncle Willie on our Discord as well. And uh, it, I made a offhand comment last week when we were talking about um, the Starship failure, about how um, you, know, you couldn't hear the the squeal of those uh turbo pumps spinning up so i wasn't sure what that whether we should expect that without ignition and and whatnot and uh i forget which vehicle i said you could hear it on but i was was it atlas uh, i don't want to um, say more wrong things <laughs> Sorry. exactly it's it's going to be wrong if we're trying to remember something wrong it's either going to be wrong once or wrong twice uh but uncle willie uh named it for us uh the rocket with the horrible spin start noise is a titan 2 the titan used a solid fuel motor to spin up the pumps makes sense for a booster that's supposed to be on standby for years at a time and i totally agree also i would argue it's not a horrible spin start noise it's actually really cool i i think i like it All right, welcome to the interview segment. Today we have uh, R. Matt Villarreal. Uh, he is the founder and CEO of Infinite Composites. Welcome, Matt. How's it going? Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, it's going uh, going really well. Excited to uh, to be on the show. Yeah, man, we we love carbon composites. So, Infinite Composites. Can you give us just like a, a quick overview of what your company does and how you got started. Yeah, so uh, Infinite Composites designs, develops, and manufactures ultralightweight gas storage systems. Uh, these are for both high-pressure gases and cryogenic uh, gases, and they're typically being used for uh, propellant tanks and pressure tanks on uh, space launch vehicles, satellites, and other spacecraft. Uh, but there's also a lot of applications in uh, aviation and automotive for uh, hydrogen and natural gas fuel tanks. 
Um, and we got started uh, while my co-founder Michael and I were part of a, a collegiate racing team called Formula SAE. And uh, we converted the world's first car to run on uh, first car of its type to run on compressed natural gas, and it used a, a very heavy metal tank to uh, to store the gas, and that's what kind of uh, showed us what the pain is. It, uh, we did a twenty four hour endurance race, and it uh, was uh, really a drag because we kept having to refuel over and over and over again, and the tank was very heavy. So uh, it kind of enlightened us to a problem with heavy gas tanks. Are we talking like a barbecue propane tank or something more specialized? Uh, yeah, no, barbecue propane tanks, like 60 PSI. Uh, these are typically yeah. running at 3,000 PSI or above. So okay. we've gone up to 6,000 PSI for basically the operating pressure and about 14,000 PSI for uh, the, the burst pressure, which is basically the upper limit of pressure that it can handle before it uh, blows up. Yeah, every time I see CNG on the back of a bus or something, in my head, I just see like, you know, six or nine uh, like barbecue gas tanks just like piled up in the back, uh, even though that's, you know, not the case. So that was when you kind of saw the value in a, in a different type of tank. Um, what got you to the point where you were actually manufacturing them? You know, once we started uh, realizing there was a problem, uh, my business partners and I had been kind of looking for uh, an opportunity to um, to start a business in something that was important, uh, that could be, uh, you know, change the, change the world and help uh, accelerate sustainable transportation and space exploration. So we really just saw the opportunity. Um, I had a concept for how to make one of these things. And we just started applying for research funding, doing business plan competitions and uh, things like that until we started getting, uh, you know, materials, learning more about it, started making prototypes and stuff like that. And um, really, I think a lot of what's driven us is uh, uh, customer demand. Um, so we had some early customers who were willing to, you know, place an order, uh, knowing that uh, the the tanks were um, still very experimental. And uh, mm. it was kind of a forcing function to accelerate product development. And so we, um, you know, we just started making them. We got partnered with a guy. Uh, well, first we partnered with a local university, Oklahoma State University, uh, because they had some of the equipment that would allow us to make it. But uh, their experience was limited on the equipment. Uh, we were really lucky because there was an alum of our university who was a world-renowned expert on composite pressure vessels. And uh, he was making tanks for uh, like SpaceX. He had helped develop some for Blue Origin and had taught many other people how to make the legacy designs. And he basically opened up his facility to us and let us come in, start making them, making basically every mistake possible and uh, he would kind of mentor us guide us uh, in the right direction and so that's what really kind of enabled us to uh, to, to get the technology to work and uh, to get it tested and and start uh, producing them so so legacy is like before some of the improvements that you guys learned and, and created yeah so he's an expert in type 3 tanks which is basically a metal liner usually aluminum uh, sometimes steel or other exotic metals and then it's fully wrapped in carbon fiber um, and the the metal liner basically serves as the permeation barrier and the carbon fiber basically handles the pressure load so that's what i'd consider the uh, legacy type the newer types type 4 and type 5 type 4 is basically a plastic liner 
uh, with a carbon fiber shell. And then the type five, which is what we make is the all carbon fiber shell with an integrated uh, permeation barrier. So the, the single structure uh, does the gas permeation, uh, stops the gas permeation and holds the pressure load. What is that integrated layer? How is that different than a plastic liner? Yeah, so it's it's basically part of the same structure. So usually with a plastic liner, you'll have like a blow molded or other type of uh, formed liner um, that stands alone. So it's a separate component. And then they'll um, you'll put like a glue or an adhesive on it to bond it to the carbon fiber. Well, ours is uh, all manufactured kind of in one go so it's all part of the same um it's all part of the same structure and fully integral and uh so it's uh it's more like a a densified resin rich layer that that's part of the actual composite structure so both are sharing the same kind of loads so when did you start moving into type four and type five where you did you hesitate and just work in type three for a while uh no actually uh we only uh, pursued type five. Um, that was kind of early on when we were looking at what other kind of tank technologies are out there. Um, we found an article in Composites World magazine that said these linerless composite pressure vessels, which are type five, would revolutionize space exploration and sustainable transportation. And they were considered the holy grail of gas storage. And uh, so that was basically, I only wanted to pursue the type five uh, because I think a lot of other companies have failed at it because they were taking the same mindset and same uh, manufacturing techniques from the legacy designs and trying to apply those mm. to something that uh, doesn't match up completely. Um, so we've only pursued type fives, although we have made a type three for uh, a, uh, a research laboratory before. So you said that it's considered the holy grail. Um, I'm curious as to why. I, I mean, there is the fact that it would be lighter, but is that the only reason or is there something else uh, that is more beneficial about these type five tanks? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, the liners are the leading cause of failure of all pressure vessels uh, because it makes a more complex system. Uh, so you have to manage kind of the loads and the liners as well as the composite structure, which uh, makes them more uh, prone to uh, to failure. Um, but it's also more efficient as in there's uh, less material to store the same amount of uh, fluid. So you, you have a smaller footprint um, and essentially, especially in space, it's lower cost. Um, you know, the carbon fiber is more expensive but because it has higher strength capabilities you can use less overall to achieve the same kind of strength Um, so it's lower mass lower cost uh, and it's also shorter lead time Um, so metal liners uh, especially in space can take up to a year to develop uh, you know one single liner because of how tight the specs are and oftentimes you're using exotic materials and so with ours um, you know basically we don't have that. We've eliminated that from the uh, from the equation, and so um, that gives us significant uh, uh, lead time advantage as well. And in the time that you've been doing this, has it gotten faster for you? Like, have you developed better techniques, or have there been innovations, or is it still the same amount of time to actually manufacture these tanks? Yeah, we we have improved the um, the manufacturing process quite a bit from the very beginning. Um, a lot of that really is eliminating kind of uh, labor out of the equation. Uh, so we've implemented some uh, ad- some additive manufacturing processes that have uh, eliminated a lot of the hand-touched labor 
which has uh, significantly uh, decreased the uh, the time to manufacture. Um, and we're constantly iterating on our manufacturing process, trying to get it to be faster and faster and more and more precise and accurate and more repeatable. So um, you're kind of talking about some of the other COPV products on the market. So like, obviously, like when you're looking at different types uh, of COPV, you're, you're really moving into new categories. It's almost like it's a, a different product. Um, but within within each of those types, what kind of metrics are used to compare different, not not even necessarily different products from different manufacturers, but like, how do you know when you've succeeded? Are there trade-offs that you can pick um, to, you know, produce a, a different type of uh, product for a particular application or you know, how do you, how do you judge that? Yeah. So there's a, a metric called a pressure vessel efficiency. And, uh, basically it's the, uh, the burst pressure of the tank, which is the upper, uh, load limit times the volume of the tank divided by the weight. And so that, uh, it comes out as kind of a nonsense, uh, uh, number, but, uh, it, uh, it's basically a metric that can compare all different types of tanks just on both mass efficiency and uh, volumetric efficiency and so uh, basically the higher number there uh, indicates that you've made a more optimal uh, pressure vessel in most of the ways that uh, the customers value them um, which uh, for a lot of our customers it's primarily mass efficiency and so that's how we compare them um, there are trade-offs that uh, that have to be made so um, you know in some cases type 3 tanks which have the metal liner um, they have uh, more chemical compatibility with certain things, or they're less reactive to certain um, to certain fluids that you'd store. And then also, um, there is some level of permeation with all materials. So even the metal tanks have permeation, but uh, they are significantly better studied, and um, so they can basically give you permeation rates that are barely observable. Um, and we're starting to get closer to that, but, uh, for super long, uh, like satellite missions, for instance, where you're up and you're flying for 15 years or 20 years or something like that, uh, some, you know, type five tanks not, might not be applicable to that, uh, just because you will slowly be permeating some, uh, fluid out. But the trend right now is that satellite lifetimes are getting shorter and shorter and shorter and they're replacing them more and more often. So, um, the, Type fives are becoming more and more attractive to these customers because they don't have to go up and hold this thing for 20 years, um, you know, circling the earth and in a vacuum and dealing with, uh, you know, some of the issues with the space environment. Yeah, is that is that leak rate the only trade off going to type five or are there others that exist? I mean, that that would be the primary uh, trade off. The other challenge uh, that uh, that we see a lot is regulatory challenges with uh, type fives because they are uh, so much newer. Um, you know, the type threes, they've been around, um, you know, being used in especially space applications since the seventies. Um, so there are many standards that are out there for them. The, the metallic structures are far easier to study than uh, all composites. And so uh, analyzing them and certifying them to specific standards are much easier with type threes, uh, only because um, they have so much heritage and, and history. 
Um, and so oftentimes we're having to work with the governing bodies to adapt the test standards to uh, be applicable to our tanks. And a lot of that comes down to the liners. And with those legacy technologies, a lot of the tests are being done on the liners because that's kind of the uh, the primary failure point on those tanks is uh, is through the liner. So they got to do a bunch of mechanical tests. They do a bunch of um, you know chemical resistance tests and stuff like that on the liners and the metallurgy to, to certify or qualify them for flight. And so with ours, we're uh, part of the bodies that are developing these standards for type fives, but it's very slow road. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the government agencies haven't really uh, taken on. So we have to get special permits or special approvals to uh, to serve our products in many cases. I certainly hope that eases up for you over time. <laughs> so could you tell us about the the lineup of tanks that you have do you have because i i imagine that you do a lot of um you know custom work but do you have like a uh like a cots like grab and go kind of like we keep this in stock and you can just buy it set of of tanks yeah so we do have some um some designs that we have already developed and we are constantly trying to push customers to those um, so just for some reference, we have like a two liter, a 22 liter and a 212 liter. And those are kind of the, what, uh, what I would call more off the shelf, um, mm -hmm. uh, products. Um, and we try to push every customer towards those, but, uh, with space because people have such precise, uh, envelopes to put these in such kind of complex requirements. It almost, always is the case that uh you know the customer says like we sign a contract and they're like hey we're gonna buy this this off the shelf tank and then they go back and their engineers are working on it and then they're, they're like oh well we need to shorten it an inch or we need to increase the pressure on it by you know 500 psi or we need to uh figure out how to mount it because we built the whole or we designed the whole spacecraft around it and then we didn't uh think about how it's gonna fit into the the spacecraft and so we've gotten a lot of customers coalescing around those two sizes but uh, almost inevitably we're having to configure them uh, to order uh, for these guys um, so that's kind of that's kind of a, a big challenge that we're trying to work through right now is to get these certified in such a way that we have uh, some some room to configure them differently and then also, um, you know, there's different certification bodies that are relative to or applicable to certain jurisdictions. And so, like, what, what you do for, um, you know, spacecraft in the U.S. is different for spacecraft in Europe. So there's some, some certification standards that we are uh, working to go through to get the tanks certified on an international level. And once we get that certification, then we'll have truly off-the-shelf tanks that uh, basically customers could go onto our website and, uh, in some cases, swipe a credit card to uh, to just purchase them. Uh, many of them are, you know, still uh, high enough dollar value that uh, yeah. swiping a credit card would be uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, challenging. But uh, that's kind of the end goal. Um, we want to make the tanks as ubiquitous as possible. Um, in many areas of use. And uh, so going through those other certifications would give us the, uh, you know, more 
off the shelf. It would literally be off the shelf where we just stock them and, and sell them. So, so those small tweaks that you mentioned, are, are those really like small changes or does it require you to like uh, do more work than you might expect? It, it really depends on the change. So there's certain things that drive more changes. So for instance, um, like if you change the pressure, uh, it requires more carbon fiber wraps. And then if you require, if you change that design or the, the number of carbon fiber wraps, then you have to go through certification testing again. So, you know, you have to blow up a few tanks, you have to do, you have to redo your analysis and other things like that. Um, so that does happen quite a bit. Um, the mounting systems can also um, change the uh, the workload dramatically um, just because oftentimes there are incredibly tight tolerances and depending on how it's being mounted, some of them are, uh, some of the mounting systems are integral to the tank. So we'd basically filament wind the carbon fiber onto the tank onto a mounting bracket um, and so those do require quite a bit uh, more analysis and development to uh, to to get it right. Um, so those kind of things can drive a lot of engineering time and a lot of testing time. And basically, many times you have to blow up a tank to uh, a tank or two to complete the qualification again. Are volume changes ever requested, or is that starting from scratch? Like, if somebody says, you know, this tank is perfect, but it's like, you know a centimeter and a half too long can we just shorten it a little bit yeah so so length is uh easier to uh adjust and reconfigure versus diameter um again like uh, the diameter is kind of similar to the pressure uh, so when you change the diameter you often have to change the whole uh composite overwrap pattern um and so that drives you know those same uh, kind of increases in engineering time and testing time and, and costs. But uh, with length, there are some ranges that you can uh, certify it in. And the pattern essentially stays the same, but it lengthens the cylinder section. So like, you know, you have two domes and a cylinder basically on here. And um, when you change the, the volume via length, um, you basically just extend that cylinder section. So it would keep the, the stacking sequence of the the composite the same, but uh, it would just elongate the passes of the carbon fiber that are going along the cylinder section. Um, so that you know that's a lot easier to change, and a lot the international standards that I mentioned before they give you some allowance on that, so you can go up to a fifty percent uh, change in length oh. without having to recertify or only with having to do like minimal testing. Um, but on diameter, you can change uh the diameter only 20 percent and um you still have more tests to complete but uh you can't you do have a 20 percent allowance but uh for a lot of these customers um especially with the more uh efficient designs that have a lower safety factor um you know changing that diameter um even by you know a centimeter can drive some pretty significant changes in the in the pattern design and the layup. Uh, you talked about uh, mounting structures on the website. There are some photos. They, they look like they're CG, but it looks like a, a carbon fiber end, like an end cap. Is that is that a real thing? Was that a concept? Uh, yeah. So we we have some and uh, we have a, a couple of patents on this an integrated carbon fiber mounting structure, and so uh, we we call it a skirt. Uh, but basically, you'll wind a whole tank, 
And then uh, on the outside, um, you know, sometimes you'll have these these mounting rings and sometimes you won't, but uh, you'll wind the whole tank and then you'll wind a section of the composite that will go beyond the dome structure and you'll wind that around like a metal ring or something like that that you can just couple. You can either couple multiple tanks together with those rings or you can, for instance, with a, a small launch vehicle, if you have these rings on your propellant tank, your pressure and tank, and your oxidizer tank, you can basically just couple those three tanks together with these hmm. uh, with these mounting structures to make the primary structure of your rocket. Um, so those are those are real. Um, we have made them. Uh, we have had some customers uh, who have integrated them uh, into their vehicles like that. That looks unique to me. I don't know if I've seen anybody else do something quite. I mean, it, it's almost lacy. Like it really. Looks like it's low mass. Uh, do you know if anybody else is doing anything like this? Uh, there are some other companies who have done skirts, but usually they're like hand laid up fabric, uh, carbon fiber. Uh, Ours are uh, integrally wound. So we use the same yeah. process to make that skirt as we do to make the composite structure of the tank. At, at what point do you do you drop the ring in? Like, is that something that you start start on your mandrel? You've already got the, the two rings on there or? You do that after, you know, later on in the process. Yeah, some uh, it, it kind of depends on uh, both customer requirements and uh, the precision of uh, how mm. the rings place. Sometimes they have to be clocked in a very precise manner to match up with the the, the threads on the tank uh, ports and stuff like that. Oh, sure. So sometimes we'll do it um, in the same step where we have the rings kind of off to the side of the winder. And then uh, when we finish winding the tank, we'll bring the rings to their the right position, and then we'll just wind. We'll just continue the winding process, and you'll basically trap those rings in into the tank, and uh, it'll be kind of integrally bonded. Other times, we'll make the tank. Um, we'll you know put it in the box, put it in the crate on the shelf, and then when a customer is ready, or when you know we have a uh, time in our in our winding room to do it, we'll go through and we'll just prep a bunch of them and uh, wind those structures on uh, in a secondary process. Um, so it can be done either way. Um, I prefer the uh, one step process yeah. uh, just because, you know, it's all cured together. It all has the same properties. It's using the same resin, all that stuff. And you don't have to, you know, do any sanding or anything on the outside of the tank. But uh, for convenience and manufacturability, you know, the secondary process is good. And oftentimes we sell the tanks, you know, we'll, we'll have a part number for the tank without a mounting, uh, integrated mounting feature on it. And so some customers will buy, you know, three of them without it. And then they want like the last two with it so they can try it out or fit it up on mm -hmm. their vehicle. And so it just makes it easy for us to have some some stock and then you know, we can basically pull one off the shelf, wind the, wind the uh, skirt on to it afterwards and, um, you know, just kind of use more off the shelf standardized parts that way. I do want to just ask, because I saw a rocket in some of the images called Celerate. Is that your uh, fictitious kind of in-house <laughs> rocket for demonstrating how your products look on a launch vehicle? Yeah, I mean, that was just uh, some some renderings uh, that I uh, play around with and... In Fusion 360, um, eventually, though, uh, one of the things I really do want to do is create a fully all-composite rocket that can be made primarily with filament winding, so it could be all a singular structure. 
the, the seller rate that's on there, that's just very, uh, you know, for marketing purposes, but, um, I have been working on a, uh, design for an all composite rocket, uh, that, uh, would be completely integral. It'd be basically one part would be the primary structure of the tank and it would include the mm. propellant oxidizer and the, um, pressurant system. Um, so that's something that, uh, is, you know, kind of on our roadmap, but, uh, the, uh, the Celerate rocket is more just, uh, marketing and display for now. It's more than a gimmick, but like, it's a good gimmick, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, really one of the things that we, that I wanted to show with that is how much of a rocket is made up of the tanks. Um, and so, oh, yeah. you know, essentially you have a stack of tanks that are integrated together, oftentimes with more tanks inside or, or wrapped around the, the outsides of it. And then you have a big engine on the bottom and a big payload on the top. And, you know, you have plumbing and connections in between that. But over 60% of the weight of an average rocket is uh, in its tanks. And so it's kind of hard to display that uh, without, you know, kind of mm. building it up yourself because not a lot of people show, um, you know, it's kind of hard to show a cutaway of a rocket in a lot of cases. And so uh, right. there are some yeah. out there, but, uh, you know, not with our branding and our tanks in them. So, so far we've talked about, uh, cylindrical tanks with dome ends. Uh, what other shapes are possible for, um, carbon pressure vessels? What shapes do you make? And, uh, are there any shapes that, that other types of pressure vessels can do, you know, maybe even easily that carbon just is never going to be able to do or that composites never going to be able to do? Um, yeah. So there's, uh, there's, there's actually quite a few, uh, different tank shapes that you can make. Um, so uh, aside from your spherical or your cylindrical tank, you can make a spherical tank. So we made some 24-inch uh, carbon fiber spheres for Kennedy Space Center a couple of years ago, um, intended for like a lunar lander application. Uh, we've also done some uh, non-circular cross-section tanks. So it'll kind of be like a uh, hexagonal or octagonal cross-section, um, kind of makes it more easily uh, packed into a kind of like a square box or square, square um, cross-sectional envelope. Uh, those are basically the ones that we've done. Um, it is possible to make a toroidal or donut shaped tanks with the carbon fiber. Um, although most of those are being hand laid up um, versus uh, what we do, which is filament winding. So those are kind of just like fabrics that are laid up on there. Uh, whereas ours is yeah. a continuous band of carbon fiber wrapped all the way around. And that can be done with filament winding, but it's very uncommon. You have to have some pretty specialized uh, tooling to do that. Yeah, you'd need a bobbin, right? You, well, yeah, it's like uh, you have to have something that can pass that fiber around the around mm. to the inside of the tank. And so it would basically be kind of wrapping it like... Um, yeah, I can't, I can't think of it. There's some electronic components that are basically wrapped around like kind of like motor, uh, uh, coils on motors and stuff like that. Yeah. Or a transformer maybe. Yeah. Transformer. That's what I was thinking of. Um, so yeah, you have to have something that can pass that through without breaking the fiber. And so we don't, we don't have that capability right now, but, uh, it's definitely possible. And we are getting, we have had uh, quite a few requests for, uh, for building out that capability, but, uh, we got our hands full with, uh, the, the more, uh, easily executed projects that we that we have right now so <laughs> hasn't been on the top of the priority list. So what is what are the uses for those types of tanks actually? Because uh, I hadn't thought about that. Like, what are the these toroidal tanks for generally? Um, yeah, so they'd either be for like a 
propellant uh, or uh, oxidizer storage. But the reason uh, a lot of companies like that hole in the middle is because you can route all your plumbing and stuff through it, or you can have another tank. Uh, for instance, like a high pressure tank could be fed through there. So um, it just gives you better kind of routing options for different components in your system. Um, and that's, I think, the primary use case. Um, in um, you know, these tanks are typically not going to be very high pressure, maybe 1500 PSI or so. But uh, if they could be produced in a higher pressure way, this would be ideal for like um, passenger vehicles. So basically you replace your, your spare tire with a toroidal hydrogen tank and you don't actually have to fill up your trunk space or, you know, have these tanks mounted under the car or whatever. They can kind of go into an existing um, kind of compartment. Um, but but primarily they're being used on launch vehicles and uh, and some satellites and uh, they're usually for low pressure storage. Uh, but they really just want them to be able to put other stuff in that in that space or run lines and stuff in the, in through that hole. Uh, what about asymmetrical shapes? Uh, if you had a a rocket, maybe it might be nicer to have the bottom of the rocket wider than you know, than the top of the rocket. Yeah, you can do uh, conical shapes as well. So yeah, I mean, that's just really the geometry of your mandrel. And uh, you have to do some kind of non-standard things with the pattern design, but you can definitely do a, a conical shaped tank. And uh, they have a lot of those actually on um, uh, missiles. And I I'm, I think uh, actually, now I'm thinking about it, oftentimes you have that conical uh, tank coupled with the toroidal tank so that the conical can go through the uh, the toroidal into like a, oh. a, a conical head or a yeah. dome-shaped head. Um, but yeah, those are those are actually very interesting. We haven't made one of those conical-shaped tanks because uh, I don't think they're very, they're not used very often in a lot of our applications, but it's definitely possible. So Matt, you'd brought up the, uh, the electronics before. Um, we have uh, a pair of questions from uh, Chubby in our discord uh mm -hmm. what kind of sensor packages do you have inside the copvs and have you had any problems due to stray carbon fiber strands interfering with electronics um so kind of standard we don't have any uh instrumentation on these tanks but uh, we do add uh, strain gauges some pressure transducers which those aren't necessarily on the uh on the tank itself uh but we also have thermocouples that we uh, that we apply in some cases. We don't have much uh, issue with uh, stray carbon fibers because the resin systems themselves are insulating. Um, and so with the amount of resin that we have on the fibers, we haven't had a lot of interference there. But uh, yeah, pressure tran or not pressure transducers, I'm sorry, uh, strain gauges and thermocouples, we do apply to the outside of the tanks often. And uh, we do have a project going on for a smart tank which uh, would basically have integral uh, strain gauges uh, kind of wound into the tank to measure strain. And you can get pressure from strain because it's basically just the stretching of the, uh, of the tank, which can, can fairly easily be correlated. Um, but that's something that we're, that we're working on. We've got some, uh, some electrical engineers on our team that are uh, developing the, that technology. Um, but um, we don't, we don't do it uh, standard on every tank or anything. It's really just on a case-by-case -case basis when customers want it. Uh, but we do plan to offer kind of a, uh, a data package in the future where we instrument these things and then we 
uh, can track the data and supply that to the customer while it's in service. So you can tell how many times it's been pressurized, if it's seen any, um, you know, acceleration from, from uh, being dropped or damaged or hitting something. And so that'll help uh, ensure the safety of the tanks. Um, but, uh, you know, that's a kind of a future roadmap. So you just said that data can tell you how many times it's been pressurized. Um, how much does that factor into the life of the tank? The pressurization and depressurization, like, is there uh, a limit on the cycles for these tanks? So oftentimes they'll be designed for a specific cycle life. And that's one of the downsides of the uh, metal line tanks is the metal liners suffer from uh, cyclical fatigue. So over time, they'll get weaker and weaker and weaker, and then eventually they'll uh, they'll fail. Uh, with the composite tanks, uh, as long as you keep the uh, the stress ratios under the appropriate uh, kind of load cases, uh, theoretically you can cycle these tanks for many, many, many years. Uh, we've done a simulated 20-year useful life on our tanks where we cycled them 18,000 times and actually saw some uh, enhanced performance of the tank uh, when we burst it. So... Um, you know, as long as you operate it in the right conditions, our tanks should be able to, to cycle for a very, very long time. Mm. So more more than 20 years. But that is baked mm. into the design. So, you know, you overbuild it a little bit with the carbon fiber to make sure that you have the proper um, safety factors and stuff on there. So it can't it is designed into the tanks um, to, you know, basically you don't want to have any extra carbon fiber and you don't want to build a tank that can withstand 20,000 cycles when the uh, service life is only 50 cycles. So mm -hmm. uh, that drives a lot of material costs and uh, also testing costs. So the reason Chubby asked that question, I think this is really fun. He says, uh, I asked the instrument package question due to the Apollo 13 oxygen tank sensor failure. And so I think that's that's a really fun direction to think about things. Uh, mm -hmm. Are integral sensors something that, that would make a lot of sense? I mean, building the sensors into the tank rather than just dropping them in through the, you know, the inlet valve or whatever. Yeah. So, I mean, it gives you, so, you know, you put, you put the, uh, the sensor on the inlet valve, whatever, that gives you like a single point, the single point reading, really. And it's kind of like a global reading of the whole tank. But by integrating them into the structure, you can have these sensors in multiple different layers of the composite. And so one of the differences between the metal tanks and the composite tank is because you have all these layers, um, when a failure starts to happen or when an issue starts to happen, it can initiate in a certain uh, layer of the tank. Most, most often, you know, if it's regular use, it'll be from the inside out. Um, but if it's damaged, you know, from an external source, it would be from the outside in. But what that, uh, what having those sensors kind of embedded into the different layers gives you, that gives you kind of like a 3D model of what's going on in the tank. So you can determine, um, you know, what uh, what ply of the composite is going to fail first or which one is damaged or how much it's been damaged. And so that gives you a more comprehensive view of what's going on. It's more comprehensive and it's more granular, you know, of how the tank's reacting to those stresses and and you know, it basically just gives you a better view of how safe the tank is to operate, if it needs to be vented, or if it's, you know, if it's critically damaged and it needs to be taken out of service. And so that's, that's really one of the driving factors behind the smart tank uh, concept is to, you know, make them safer, uh, so that while they're in service, you can determine, 
um, you know, what's going on with the tank with a very finite and precise kind of a view of, of yeah. how the mechanics of the tank are working. So we have another question in the chat uh, from Steigerfield, and he wants to know, um, are they or are you looking at replacing the O2 tanks uh, for aircraft? Yeah, we, we have been considering that. We've had uh, one of the major uh, suppliers of those tanks who we'd been in discussions with over and over again, but they kept getting uh, acquired or merging into other companies, and it kept kind of resetting the conversation back to square one. But there is some interest in that. Uh, basically, all the emergency oxygen breathing air tanks, both for the crew and the uh, the passengers, um, I think that's a, a very big opportunity. They require some pretty extreme testing um, on our tanks to, to go through it. And so, you know, we haven't been able to move forward with that customer because they keep uh, they keep getting, you know, like I said, merged or acquired. And so we've kind of put it on the back burner, but it is a big opportunity. Um, but another area in aviation that uh, we uh, are seeing interest is in the uh, hydrogen-powered uh, aircraft space and so there's a uh, a lot of money being put in to developing these hydrogen propulsion systems from um, both governments and uh, airlines and and others to uh, to switch to hydrogen as a more sustainable fuel for uh, aircraft so those are the two main areas can also be used in fire suppression systems on aircraft and in like your emergency uh, slide uh, inflators as well and so i'm assuming that the major reason why they're interested is this because of the weight reduction of the tanks or again is there some other reason like what's the advantage of your tanks over the traditional ones that they're currently using yeah for the for the oxygen tanks and the slide inflators the primary driver is uh is reducing mass um it's kind of like that uh old case study where i think it was uh, united or somebody removed like two olives out of the uh, salads um, to save weight. So this is, it's that on a more extreme level, uh, cause there's about, uh, uh, thing on the 737, there's like 150 of these tiny bottles, uh, above all the seats. And then there's another set of them for the lavatories and another set of them for the crew. So there's uh, quite a bit of mass to be saved mm -hmm. by that. Uh, but for the other applications, it's more about, I think the, uh, the carbon emissions and, uh, kind of, uh, decarbonizing, you know, the aircraft fuels. Uh, Chubby asks, what's the smallest tank you can make? The smallest tank we've made is a quarter of a liter. Uh, I believe it's roughly 2.75 inches in diameter. Um, we made those for uh, NASA Langley. Uh, they were supposed to go up on uh, the outside of the International Space Station, uh, but that project got delayed and they were basically going to be a material test to... Uh, We'd send the tanks up there. They'd be mounted on the station for six months uh, just to, um, you know, have the uh, environment, uh, you know, try to degrade them or whatever. Then we bring them back down yeah. and then we do some testing on them. Uh, but that's the smallest we've made so far. Uh, it was a 2.75 inch sphere. It'd be really fun to just have your tank back from space, right? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, we're, we're re-engaging uh, with the uh, ISS to get those up there. Um, so that might be happening in the, in the next uh, nine months or so. Um, but we have some other flight opportunities that will be on actual missions that uh, should be launching into space by then. Do you know what kind of structure they were looking at putting them in? Like, is Are we just talking like sheet metal or something? Uh, it would be uh, – so it's a custom design thing because 
nothing's been done like this with the tanks yeah. like this uh, on the ISS like that. So we developed a, a custom, it was a machined aluminum mounting plate basically with uh, spherical holes in it. So you'd, uh, you'd mount the tanks in there, you'd cover up uh, the majority of it and kind of leave, I believe it was like a one inch uh, opening on the side so that that one inch is the only thing really getting exposed to the yeah. uh, atomic oxygen and other things. And so there'd be radiation sensors behind it and uh, you'd kind of isolate where the, uh, where the exposure is. But uh, yeah, totally cool. custom custom mounting for that. Yeah, I did not expect to hear machined aluminum. Like that, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So our penultimate question is, where would you like to be found on the internet? Yeah, the best place to find us is infinitecomposites.com. Um, there's a lot of stuff there and links to all of our other social uh, sites. But uh, also we have a pretty big LinkedIn uh, following and uh, Instagram and Facebook. But uh, all of the uh, the links to uh, where you can find us will be in the show notes. Wonderful. And then we have our traditional final question, which is less of a question and more of a game show. It's uh, a little game called Overrated Underrated. It's a quick fire list of products or concepts that I've put together. And I want you to tell me uh, if the world sees too much value in each of these, too little value in them. Uh, or I guess in rare instances, if the world correctly values them. Are you ready? Sure, yeah. First up, overrated or underrated fiberglass? I would say underrated because I think it can be used in a lot of applications where it's not being used uh, in more mm -hmm. impactful ways than it is. Overrated, underrated satellite internet? I don't know if it's overrated or underrated. I think uh, with uh, Starlink, we're really starting to see how valuable satellite internet is. Uh, you know, maybe previous gens weren't, uh, previous products weren't, uh, as useful, but, uh, I think, uh, I think Starlink's changing the game on that. So maybe underrated. All right. Overrated, underrated, a cellulose lignin composite. I would say probably underrated right now because I don't think they're, uh, as well studied or utilized, but I think they can have some, uh, very impactful effects on, um, you know, generally how composites are made and, and different use cases for composites. Overrated or underrated hydrogen-powered cars? Uh, underrated. I think, uh, well, for the general public, it's probably underrated. I think a lot of people are uh, more conscious of how it can impact society because you can make hydrogen from, you know, many different renewables. You can make it from fossil fuels. You can make it from seawater. So um, I think it'll be the end-all, be-all fuel for uh, on Earth and off Earth. I kind of hope so. And one last one, overrated or underrated mandrills. That's M-A-N-D-R-I-L-L. -L. That would be the monkey. Uh, underrated, because I wasn't very familiar with them um, previously. So there's got to be some value there. <laughs> Co colored butts. I mean, how, it doesn't get better. Oh, yeah. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely un underrated. Okay, good. I, I agree with you. All right, Matt, thank you so much for... Uh, taking all this time to talk to us. This was just absolutely delight to, to pick your brain. Yeah, great. Uh, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it and uh, yeah, look forward to, uh, to, to checking out the show more often. So let's move on to this week in spaceflight history. We have uh, several winners, more than a couple. We have Peter McMally, Michael Freeman, the Greek, Hydrak, Desky Miller, and Chris slash Steigerfield. So the clue was 12 prime which was pretty obscure to me but i guess it totally made sense to a lot of people mm -hmm. and, and i'm assuming that i mean it's, it's hard to say but i'm guessing that they at least put together 
the reason for the clue and they didn't just search for an event and then, you know, post facto kind of figure it out because the clue yeah, seems like really know. hard to figure out for me. Our listeners are just that good. Yeah. Our listeners are far nerdier than we are. Far far more knowledgeable <laughs> at least. True. Uh, that is that is true. Yeah. So, this week in spaceflight history is July 28, 1961. NASA issued invitations to bid for the Apollo Prime contract. And so this is the Apollo spacecraft uh contract. Um, thank you very much to, uh, the Greek for pointing out that we, uh, did the LEM contract back in episode 220. Um, that took place, uh, in 1962, almost exactly a year later. Also, uh, fun, the Orbital Mechanics podcast trivia. That was mm. also the episode that we did the Ron Berkey interview. So highly appropriate, uh, make that, that made me happy when I went and looked up uh, 220, episode 220. All right. Uh, so this is going to be a, a pretty quick coverage. Um, but in the show notes is the actual full text of the statement of work. Um, thank you to Mike Stewart for sending me a link uh, last week. And honestly, there there's a good 50-50 odds that Mike is the one who actually scanned and uploaded that. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not <laughs> sure. It, it's a little, it's, it's not quite obscure enough to be, uh, in his wheelhouse. Uh, yeah, he, he confirms no, he didn't upload that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a really good read. Um, you can view it on archive.org or you can download the PDF. Um, which I had to do because a lot of the pages are sideways and, uh, I think one's upside down, but so the, the invitation to bid is, uh, mostly this statement of work, which is basically laying out what the contract is, you know, cause you can say, Hey, we, we want somebody to design uh, a moon spacecraft, but that's not specific enough. So, um, the, the bulk of the information in the book is uh, a list of all the responsibilities that the contractor needs to be able to fulfill. It's the bulk of the information, not the bulk of the pages. I'll talk about the, the second half of the book uh, in a sec. But um, yeah, they, they split the, the work up into three different phases. Uh, phase A was sort of the hardware and procedure qualification. So that's the LEO crude flights. And in particular, they were looking for crude flights up to two weeks long. Um, and then high orbit uncrewed reentry tests. All the phase A launches were planned to happen on a Saturn C1. Um, then phase B is sort of like the lunar learning phase. So that's for, uh, circumlunar and lunar orbit missions. Uh, and then parabolic reentry. Those were stated to be launched on a Saturn C3. And then phase C is the actual surface operation. So that's like Apollo 11 and onward. Um, and it, this is the, the really lovely part. They said that's going to launch on a Saturn C3 or a Nova class rocket. And, uh, you know, you just have to go back, I think three episodes to get, mm. uh, to, uh, my, my little dive in on, uh, what actually Nova class <laughs> wound up meaning. Okay. So 
NASA really wanted their contractor, their prime contractor, to do a lot of work. Now, remember, this is a prime contractor, so they can uh, hire subcontractors to do a lot of this work. And, you know, of course, that did happen. Um, but, like, this, this is a bulky, heavy contract. They wanted uh, to pay someone to do the design and manufacture of the command module, the service module, as well as a spacecraft adapter. They specifically exclude the GNN of GNC. So that's the guidance and navigation is not going to be the responsibility of this contractor. Uh, the control will be guidance, navigation, control. They're going to do control. Somebody else is going to do uh, design and manufacturing of the guidance and navigation modules. And then also they exclude um, the, the science modules, but that's not terribly surprising. They also uh, wanted to purchase, uh, wanted to. Contingent on winning this contract was the ability to provide test spacecraft for Saturn uh, development efforts, uh, or again, <laughs> Saturn and Nova class launcher <laughs> development efforts. If you just started listening to the show or didn't listen to our episode, uh, I believe three episodes ago, um, the Nova class launcher wound up being the Saturn V. They, uh, the contract also includes the design and manufacture of spacecraft related ground support equipment. It includes the act of spacecraft integration. So you like, you build a spacecraft, we're going to send you all this uh, equipment to plug into it, and you have to integrate it. Um, and then the, this contractor, this, this prime spacecraft contractor, also had to be the one to ensure compatibility between the spacecraft and the spacecraft's GSE and the existing GSE for the launcher and the spacecraft and everything. The way I'm thinking about this is the concept of shit rolling uphill. Normally, we say shit rolls downhill. Um, saying that, you know, the least important person in an organization is the one who has to deal with the, you know, all of the worst work. But yeah. in this case, like, it's kind of interesting. The, the vehicle is not only literally the highest point on the rocket, but it's also like the longest lived, the part that's going to keep people alive, the part that's going to do all this work. It's kind of the most important part of this entire stack. And yet that prime contractor, uh, is the one who's, um, having to make sure that they fit into everything else. Just it, you know, it's interesting. It shouldn't be that terribly surprising to me, I guess, because, you know, vehicles are also not the things driving, uh, mass allowances. They're usually, um, bowing to a mass allowance imposed on them from outside. But so the rest of the statement of work and it's over half of it, I think it's more like two thirds is just a bunch of like reference material. Um, so there's some really basic things that is basically like somebody printing out pages from Wikipedia today. Uh, there's a diagram of the Van Allen belts. Um, there are numbers for micrometeoroid distributions. There are even some mathematical constants like, uh, the masses of different planets in our solar system and, uh, a fairly low, uh, number of decimal places for the gravitational constant. Um, there's also some really important things that aren't just like, Hey, you know, this is, uh, you know, pulled out of a textbook, uh, things like the definition of the spacecraft axes, like this coordinate system, as well as, um, the restrictions that they've already decided on for, um, vibrational limits and G force limits. I say G forces in particular, um, because those diagrams, uh, label the, the beyond the maximum acceptable, 
uh, G loads uh, as eyeballs out, uh, <laughs> which is a really, a really lovely term. And so at this point, you know, the vehicle configuration is, is not yet finalized. So also in these reference uh, values are a bunch of different theoretical arrangements uh, for the spacecraft and lunar lander. Um, and some of them are really lovely. One of them is um, an orbital laboratory in place of the LEM. It is like a, a, a very short cylinder with uh, domes rather than like hemispheres on the end. But it's like a six foot tall laboratory uh, that's as big around as the, as the service module. So, you know, it's, it's pretty chunky. It's, it's no Skylab, but it, but it is pretty big. Yeah. Um, there's also uh, a bunch of really interesting diagrams, uh, that kind of indicate, um, one way to build the CSM would be to have really low delta V, like basically just enough, uh, to be able to move around in low earth orbit and then plugging in propulsion modules on top of that that would let them, um, go to the moon for a flyby, go to the moon and enter orbit. Um, that kind of thing. It's, I just love seeing some of these early documents that are really unfamiliar in a lot of ways because we just, we didn't know how we were going to do it yet. And mm -hmm. and now we almost take it for granted that this is the way that Apollo works. And also because, uh, because Saturn V had not yet been built, their uh, diagram of a, a CSM on top of a C1 doesn't have like an S4B, right? Like it's, it's like this spacecraft's just going to get into orbit and everything else is staying gravitationally bound. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's kind of nice. All right. So that's this week in spaceflight history. I kept it really short because we had this long mm -hmm. interview. Um, mm. and like I'm basically drawing on one document here and it's, it's free to, it, it's free and is linked and it's really good to just flip through. I, I would highly encourage you to do so. And I mentioned the, uh, the acceleration graph, uh, because there's this really lovely, uh, set of diagrams. So there, there are three of these guys. Um, one is labeled eyeballs out. One is labeled eyeballs down. And the other one is labeled eyeballs in. And so, uh, there's a diagram of somebody in a seated position and an arrow, um, showing which way they're being accelerated. And so the, the limits for eyeballs out is like way lower than eyeballs down or eyeballs in. So when, when I first read this, um, Kenton in, uh, Discord corrected me on this. I was assuming that eyeballs out is the maximum limit that a human can, uh, can sustain. Uh, but this is actually, this is better than this kind of colloquial jokey kind of, uh, statement. It's, a, it's a fantastic way to get everybody on board right away. Arrows and diagrams are fantastic, but if you can say eyeballs in, eyeballs out, eyeballs down, you know exactly what that means and you, you can't mistake it and you can't flip that. You can't flip it around on accident. So pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And, uh, thanks, Kent. I appreciate the, uh, I appreciate the catch. Well, Ben, thank you for that twist. If, uh, I love that you keep doing these Apollo ones because I learn a lot each time. <laughs> Can't stop, won't stop. All right. Now, David, you have the uh, next week, uh, which is the 2nd to the 8th of August. Do you have a clue for us? Yeah. The event is in 1993, and the clue is space is dangerous, and another word for space is gap. 
GAP mm. gap. Truer words never spoken. Uh, <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> well, if you think you know what that means, uh, send us an email or tweet at us with the hashtag ThisWeekSF, and good luck. Good luck. All right, so no upcoming spaceflight events for this week, so we're just going to close out the show. And so we will deorbit, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Chris, Deskin, McMally, Mike, Dave M., The Greek, Kenton, Chubby, Gopal, Sam, and Leon Running Man for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show, please share this episode with a friend. You can also leave us a review wherever you listen, or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com, and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, that's it. We will see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.